Welcome! You're listening to audio of Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. At ICC, we are being transformed by Jesus to impact our world. Wherever you are as you listen today, we want you to know that we love and appreciate you. We're so glad you're here. We hope today's message will help you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thanks again for joining us. Well, good morning. I'm Tom Crocker, associate pastor of ICC here. Barrett and, and Robbie are all away, away on assignment, if you would, uh, in New York, uh, helping a church there in ministry. And so be praying for them today. And um, it's just good to have the privilege to share with you today um, in, in worship and in teaching this morning. We have been in our uh, series of Second Samuel incredible, incredible journey of God is faithful to redeem his people and fulfill his covenant and his covenant grace. Today, we're going to look at the topic for giving grace, God's redemption in sin. And we're going to look at the passages, and yes, we're going to read 2 Samuel 10 through 12. You know, they would pick the slowest reader to teach with the longest passage, so. But uh, I'm glad for us to spend some time in this narrative, although it is a heavy passage. And I, I want to just say that um, I will even be referencing in today's passage the presence of abuse. And I know a word for those who have experienced uh, that. Maybe today is going to be especially difficult. And I don't want to be oblivious to that. And I want to be sensitive and assure you that we as a church are a place of care and support for you. And we want to extend that to you. In chapter 9, we read and are able to see David's action of kindness and grace toward Mephibosheth as the foreshadowing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We get to see in the very person of David, Jesus coming on our behalf in his actions. But today, we will see in this same man David the king, one who needs a savior. So let's read, beginning with the 10th chapter. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrehob and Syrians of Zobah and 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. 
And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to, he to, to Helam and Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer. I think I said that two different ways. It's just hard word. At their head. And it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbi, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David I am pregnant so David sent word to Joab send the Uriah the Hittite send me Uriah the Hittite and Joab sent Uriah to David when Uriah came to him David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going then David said to uh, Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. 
Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning, Joab wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that, you, that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us, and they came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. <coughs> and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him. And he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbi and the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said that I have fought against Rabbi, but moreover I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbi and fought against it, and they took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head 
The weight of it was a talent of gold, and it was a precious stone. It was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. This is the word of God. If you've been tracking with us through 2 Samuel, and somehow you're unfamiliar with the story of David and Bathsheba, this really has to be a shocker. The danger, though, is that those of us, those of us who know the story well may not be shocked enough. In addition, we might even go so far to dismiss its relevance to us. Obviously, few of any of us have sinned to the extent of David. But may I remind us that the Bible says we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is very clear that we are all sinners in need of saving grace. In his treatment of this account, Tim Keller presses hard that if David could sin in these ways, what makes us think we can't? I mean, think about that for a moment. Consider for a moment who this is. This is David. David, who was the faithful shepherd, the valiant warrior, leader of his people, the composer of psalms in the Word of God. Throughout Scripture, David is the man known as the man after God's own heart. So if David could de- do these horrific things, why in the world would we excuse ourselves from the same? In reality, I just want to suggest David's story is our story. No, maybe not to the full extent of David's actions, but in every way how sin gets a hold in our lives. So the question for this morning really is, in our state of sin, in our place of sin, how do we fully experience God's forgiveness of our sin and live in His redemptive grace? We really find that answer from David in Psalm 51 that we heard read this morning. But we need to revisit a bit the story the dark story about which Psalm 51 is about. I think I said that twice. It begins with chapter 10 with Israel's war with the Ammonites whose defeat is reported in chapter, at the end of chapter 12. That's why I went ahead and read that. Because you see, um, this war is the framework. It's the time frame of which the account of David and Bathsheba occurs. For in the midst of the ongoing war, this great sin occurs. And we read in chapter 11, right at the beginning, that David sent his armies in the springtime to continue the war. But he stayed behind with time on his hands while all the soldiers went to war. And for all practical purposes, David is totally disengaged and in a place where he could and was tempted. Browsing surrounding courtyards from the palace rooftop like one would browse internet sites today. And after seeing Bathsheba and inquiring about who she is, David learns some things. We can't miss this. He learns 
that Bathsheba is the daughter of Eliam, who is a member of David's elite troops. Her father is out fighting the war. It also made Bathsheba the granddaughter of one of David's advisors. And of course, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah wasn't any, just any soldier. He was one of David's 37 mighty men listed in the scripture. His name is listed as one of the 37 mighty men that fought alongside of David. Uriah was a friend and a soldier that had risked his life for David. Such a horrid picture of how the pursuit of lust can numb us to the worth of the person and all their relationships. David's not only blowing up his own life, but horrifically the lives of family, friends, and even the nation. I believe we need to pause just a moment, and I spoke to this earlier, and speak to something in these actions of David. I know there's a lot of speculation, even a lot of writing about Bathsheba's role in all this. There may even be a suggestion that it was a romantic affair. Let's not forget that David is the leader of God's people and he is king. He is the most powerful person there is right now. And with Nathan's story that we listened to of the rich man taking the lamb from the poor man, we see a picture of one using power to have his way with another. That is abuse. This is no romantic affair. Through Nathan, God calls this evil out. And in so doing, I believe he is also giving a voice to Bathsheba who could have been easily dismissed. Later at the death of Uriah, before David takes Bathsheba to be his wife, the Bible's very clear that her experience of grief is far more than a customary time of grief. For we read in chapter 11 that when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And looking it ahead to the birth of Solomon by David and Bathsheba that comes later, that is the son who would be the next king. And you will see that he continues the line to Jesus. There would be a day where Bathsheba plays a key role in the account of Solomon's anointing. And I believe we can see in all of this how God gives to Bathsheba a voice through her own restoration and healing. I just don't think we need to miss that. But neither do we need to miss the place where David is. And in chapter 12, we see that Nathan comes to David and interestingly, Nathan means gift of God. Gift of God. We might not see judgment as a gift of God, but God's judgment, the purpose of judgment, is always redemptive in nature. When Nathan speaks to David, we need to realize that in other lands a king could do as he pleased. No one would bring into question the actions of the king. But David lived under the law of the Lord. 
And it says very clearly, and the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the prophet's story of the rich man taking the lamb from the poor man for his own use literally drives David's sense of justice to anger over such a blatant evil. And he pronounces in that moment a death sentence and demands a fourfold restitution. And it's in that moment, in response to David's outrage, that we read in verse 7, Nathan faces, Nathan faces David and says those piercing words, you, you, you are the man. And everything came crashing down. And this brings us to that pivotal exchange in 2 Samuel 12, 13, where as David has heard those words from Nathan, he looks at Nathan at some point, and, and I think I need to probably suggest something here. We read this in the narrative, but we have to realize that so often the narrative is condensed. It's, it reads as if it's kind of bang, bang, bang. We have to realize there may have been some interlude, some time frame, some, some space here. So I don't know if this is an immediate response from David to Nathan. But at this point, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the great confession. And in response, Nathan pronounces God's forgiveness and revokes the death penalty which David himself had handed down. This is far more than a flippant admission or a ceremonial confession. If there was some space there, and I believe there was, I think when David heard those words from Nathan, that you are the man, it rocked him back to the point, and I believe that literally he probably walked away. Maybe even walked back up on the rooftop, but this time not gazing outwardly, but gazing inwardly to the darkness of his soul. And it is in this place that I believe we insert Psalm 51. This is what his confession is about. It is not a straightforward, matter-of-fact expression, oh, I have done wrong. It is the deep, agonizing recognition that we see in Psalm 51 that he must confess. And it is here where we can see and learn from David that regardless of where we are, regardless of the place that we might be, we can experience God's forgiveness and live daily in his redeeming grace. That is the message here. Wherever we find ourselves, whatever we have haunting us in our lives, whatever we might be struggling with because of sin in our lives, whether, how, whatever darkness we might be in, we can experience God's forgiveness and live daily in his redeeming grace. The question is never, do we sin? The question is, what do we do after we sin? And what do we do in our sin? So I wanna lift out three things in Psalm 51. If you wanna turn to that or we'll have some passages, I'm not gonna read it again, but I am gonna draw from it and, and read some verses. I appreciate the way Matt read that for us earlier. This is the response to what we see in this interchange between Nathan and David. And I believe we see three things that we can pay attention to. The first thing we must pay attention to is that we must remember our relationship with God. That's what David does here in Psalm 51.1. He says, 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. This is not just a desperate cry for help. This is a desperate recognition that he has hurt the heart of God. He has hurt the heart of God. He has severed, he has impacted the relationship he has with his God who was the one he even wrote about, who said, he is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's remembering the relationship. And we need to remember the relationship that God desires for us. Or if you're here today and you're not sure or you're at the verge of moving into that or you desire that relationship with God this is the place to recognize yes there's punishment and there's judgment of our sin but that's not what breaks us what breaks us to come before God is his mercy it's his loving kindness it's to realize that he is there for us to come to him wherever we are can I share with you I almost hesitate to do this because I'm not drawing any comparison whatsoever. But can I share with you a perspective from a father toward their children? I don't know anybody that loves their children more than Paul and I do. We love them bigger than life. They've given us 15 grandkids of all things. But there was a time that each in a separate time and every one of them walked away. They rebelled. They pursued something different, something dark. We never stopped loving them. We couldn't follow them. We couldn't participate in what they did. We never stopped loving them. And they knew that. They knew that. And as we interceded for them, they returned to the love they knew we had. Now, Jesus says something very interesting. He says, if those of you who are evil can give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? David asked. He knew God to be a God that loved him. And he couldn't go to any place where God wasn't there. And may I suggest the same is true for us. We have a Savior who lives to intercede for us. That's what Hebrews says. Constantly lives to intercede for us. There is not a dark place that we can go that's too dark for God to be there and for Jesus to be interceding for us. That's who we have as a Savior. So remember or move into that relationship with God. Also repent from our rebellion against God. Confession is about repentance. And it's about recognizing the rebellion in our hearts and in our lives. Let's read that. Verses 2 through 4. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. David owned what he did completely. He acknowledged personal responsibility for his sin. There was no excuses and there was no blaming others. 
He acknowledges that against you and you alone have I sinned. Did he not sin against Bathsheba, Uriah, the nation, and himself? Absolutely. But it all rested. It all weighed. It all rested on the breaking of God's law and God's heart. That's what he did. He sinned against God and everything else followed. He is really choosing to see the sin as God sees it. And he states to God, I have done what is evil in your sight. He didn't say, this is my opinion. He says, I see the sin that I have committed like you see it. And I agree with that. Confession is about agreeing with God. With what he sees. You know, we can do some things even in the simple way of taking a selfie. Have you ever noticed that when you're, well, I don't know if you do this because you probably don't have this problem, but when Paul and I are taking a selfie, we're doing this. Where's our best shot? You know, how can we hide the wrinkles? You know, let's go up higher. (laughs) We can do that with sin. We can try to move it a different way where it looks different. We can sort of accept what the culture is saying, what our friends are saying, what we're feeling inside. We, we can move aside and look at our sin from our perspective and how we have shifted. That's not confession. It's not true repentance. We have to get in the Word. We have to be in the Word. We have to be presenting ourselves before God and see sin, see our sin as God sees that sin, then we will be broken. Notice too, we can't miss this. He accepts the consequences. He doesn't push back about the consequences. He never once says, Nathan, that's too hard. We've been doing a men's and women's Bible collective through Genesis, and this past week we were in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. And I thought it was interesting that in that study, along with this passage, we see the contrast of Cain to David. For you see, when God tells Cain the judgment, the consequence that he is going to have to bear now because of the killing of Abel, and that he was have to have to go out and wonder. Cain says, this is too much for me. Cain never gets to the point to agree and confess, God, I have sinned against you. He just complains. We need to listen to ourselves sometimes. As we confess, as we come to God, are we, are we complaining about the consequences? Or are we truly agreeing with God about how he sees the sin? Because he says, you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's, that's who you are, God. What you say goes, and I will accept that fully. But the third thing is that we can return to live in God's redeeming grace. Verses 5 through 12. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, your delight, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Oh, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David identifies a bigger problem even beyond the actions that he took. 
He identifies how he even got there. For he says, I realize now I have a corrupt heart in a corrupt world. That's what he means when he says, I was born in iniquity. It's not about his parents. It's about the world that he was born into that's broken. And he acknowledges, I'm broken with this world. I am corrupt in my secret places. In my heart of hearts, I am corrupt. You remember when Jesus was on earth, he, he said, you've heard it before, that you shall not murder. But I'm telling you, that if you have anger against your brother, you are guilty. And he says, you've heard it before, you shall not commit adultery. And he says, I'm telling you, if you even have lust in your heart, you are guilty. That's our heart. We must recognize that we have a bigger problem than just the actions that we take. True confession is not a one-time transaction. It is a lifestyle of redemption. David's plea is to restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is what I believe is going on there. David's recognizing that way before that walk on the rooftop, there was a void in his life. Yes, sinful actions impact the joy of our salvation, most, most definitely. But David is leading us to see it really goes the other way as well. You see, if we do not have the joy of his salvation in our hearts and in our lives, we make ourselves vulnerable to the sin that is in us and in the world. We must pleasure in him. Matt Chandler says we're all hedonists. He's probably right. We're all looking for some kind of pleasure in this world. But if we pleasure in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and in his joy and in the joy of his salvation, all the other pleasures of this world pale quickly. That is the way we need to recognize daily living that it's not a transaction of confession. It is a recognition daily of the need to live and be desperately dependent on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He makes an interesting statement that's up here. He says in Psalm 51 12 or I believe we'll put it up there. There we go. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He says when you do this, when you give me back the joy of your salvation, when you sustain my spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. That's a pretty bold statement out of the darkness and sin that he's committed. This is what I think he's saying. I think he's telling us, if I can find forgiveness, if I can move back into relationship and know the redemption of Jesus Christ, if I can go from where I was to back to where he is, so can you. So can we. I think that's what he's saying. I think he's inviting us to realize that there is no place we can go, no thing we have done, that God doesn't meet us in that place with his redemptive love, his loving kindness, and brings himself to us that we might know him and have life full and abundant because of him and truly know the joy 
of His salvation. We're going to do today something I hope you will find meaningful and helpful. I want us to spend just a moment. The praise team's going to come up. And we're going to spend some time not standing, not even moving, but sitting and gazing into our own souls. Open up Psalm 51 on your phone or in your Bible if you have the manuscript there. Open it up, even at home, if you're watching this at home. Spend some time gazing into your heart and move toward what it means to return, to live, to be in relationship with, a, with our loving Heavenly Father and to repent of anything that is emerging within our heart that would reveal its corruption. Repent of that rebellion and return or move into the relationship we can have with our Father. Will you do that right now? Just spend time. Thank you again for joining us for today's Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis. We want to encourage you to join us in person for worship soon. No podcast can ever replace the good design of God in gathering in person with other believers for worship in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with ICC, you can visit us at iccmemphis.com. As we close, we offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans 15:13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Thanks again for joining us.